as we look this morning at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Let's look to the Lord himself before we do that. Let's pray. Our God, you created everything that is. Triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are complete and self-existent. You are no greater because of what you have made. And yet we marvel at your strength and wisdom and beauty and your creation. And we would uh, learn what it means to bow before you, and especially as we who would follow Jesus, we need to know what it means to bow before the Lord Jesus who set his steps before us, and only in his life can we follow in them. So would you work in us and Father, we know uh, the human heart is a rebellious heart. Your book, uh, if we could have written it out on our own, we wouldn't have because of what it says about us. And we see in the conflict uh, as Russian armies have entered Ukraine, our tendency to want to be God, one set of leaders wanting to dominate and even willing to use violence to do it. Father, remind us that uh, the line between good and evil runs straight down the middle of each of us. But we cry out when we see that evil breaking loose. And we ask you to bring glory to yourself first of all but we do lift up, especially our brothers and sisters, but all the people in the midst of the conflict, including those in the armies. And we pray, asking you to open your word to us and us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The context... Uh, of scripture, every passage is always really important. But as I looked at this one, and I want to say without going into any detail, uh, almost every week, uh, usually on Wednesday morning, we dig in as a staff to looking at the passage. And sometimes I get from them uh, an illustration or two or a question that spurs me, and then other times uh, our thinking together just kinds of explodes, and I'm really thankful for the discussion uh, uh, that came out of that. Uh, and it led me especially to see how important uh, that if we listen to the words of the beginning of chapter 3 without understanding the context, uh, we can run off the rails, and our culture today especially isn't going to understand us as we don't see the passage in its broader context. And so what's the context? The, the context is where we've been in chapter 2 and, and chapter 1. And the context of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 especially is believers as living stones being shaped together to form Jesus' household. And his ultimate household is all of his church, uh, invisible to us, but all the saints drawn to him 
drawn to God the Father through Jesus through the centuries. Uh, but the church especially, and each visible church, uh, is a household of which Jesus is the king and the head. And then there are families. And then there are households that are similar but different in the culture. But it's, this text is all about households and how Christians in the midst of a different culture Uh, how those households work, and how people are going to hear the Christian message in the midst of that. And guess what? In America, uh, a lot of Americans don't hear the words about the Christian household the same way they did 30 years ago. And we're in a time when, uh, if we're not careful, we fall into the trap with some of our neighbors where they think some of God's speech is, strange term, hate speech. Because they don't understand the goodness of God in everything. So I want to give you a window before we dig into the text. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the chief living stone. And his person and his ways set the path. We talked about that in chapter 2. And the applications he's making from that in the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and beyond guide disciples to display God's goodness, his beauty, his grace, to both believers and to those outside the faith. It will help you to keep in mind that households in most of the world where the culture is more collective, multi-generational, I mean, it's just we're not used to it unless we had a family culture that was more like that. Some of the ethnic cultures in America are more like that. Uh, You know, we can look at the movie The Godfather. I'm not necessarily recommending it. Uh, But it's sort of a window into how your actions don't just affect you. And the wrong actions can really affect you uh, because the whole thing is bigger than you. And that's the biblical culture, both the Old Testament culture and the culture in the Greco-Roman areas like Asia Minor to which Peter is writing. It's true today I've ministered uh, six trips about three weeks each in Uganda and Rwanda and to some Rwandans and Congolese and uh, I can tell you that almost every pastor I know is head of a household that is not a nuclear family. Uh, Some of the men I've worked with uh, they started using a term that I didn't understand like uh, they had to go walking around and in Ugandan English that means most of the churches aren't big enough to support a pastor. And he's usually got brothers and cousins and extended family of which he is the head of the household. And so he's got to provide for them as well as for his wife and his own children. And there's never enough. So walking around means walking around and finding odd jobs and work that he can do to supplement his income from the church. So what happens to him affects a whole big group of people. So think of Abraham and Sarah with how large his entourage had become. Do you remember the part of the story? Can't do anything but touch on it. When uh, his nephew Lot was head of a sub-household within the household that was so big that the territory that they were living in couldn't support them, so they had to split territories. It's because Abraham's family was a big, big chunk of that whole household, and Lot's was a big sub-chunk, and they split. And one of the things that, uh, if you don't understand it, makes what happened with uh, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and if you've read the text, you know Sarah's in it. That's why I'm using this. It's taking us somewhere. Uh, Is that to be the head of that kind of a household, 
in a collective culture, Abraham and Sarah, and not have any children takes away your honor points and gives you shame points because something's wrong and God is not being faithful to you. And in the minds of some, it might even say, maybe Abraham shouldn't be the head of the household. And so Sarah, in a way that was fitting to the culture, said when she couldn't conceive and couldn't conceive and couldn't conceive, Abraham, take Hagar, my maidservant, my handmaiden, and have a child for the family through her. Now, we grade against that because we don't understand household the same way. And we don't know what was going on in the culture. But take note, and I'll say more about it later, that it seems, from what Scripture says, uh, that Hagar was in the lead on that decision. How is that submitting to her husband? Well, Scripture seems to be, in a certain kind of way, okay with her making that suggestion. Households needed to behave in ways that supported their city cultures and uh, their family gods, the city gods, uh, and fit in to deal with their culture. And that's why Christians were often a jarring group when they came in with very different ways of living. And that's why we as Christians today are becoming in ways that we weren't a jarring group in our culture. Uh, and it's why people sometimes can like Christianity and religion, but don't like Jesus much. Because, boy, he says hard things to everybody. And yet beautiful things that bear beautiful fruit when we come to see where they are. So if you looked at the title on the outline, you thought, has O'Dowd lost his mind? Well, some days I do. But not an engineering manual, but a letter from your shepherd. Uh, what I mean by that is this. We tend to read Bible sentences or paragraphs as if every verse or passage is a summary statement of all the Bible has to say on a subject. And the danger in that is that, uh, so we see wives do this, husbands do this, and we say, oh, wow, this is what the Bible says about that. And we don't even read the paragraph that came before and the paragraph that became other, after, comes after, let alone understand what the purpose in the chapter is, which is one of the reasons why uh, when you're really studying the Bible, uh, forget chapter divisions until after you've read what comes before the chapter break and what comes after, and you decide with help from others whether there's really a break or not. I mean, they're kind of arbitrary. Uh, there's an old story that's got some truth in it that a guy was riding a horse looking at the Hebrew text and the Greek text and, and marked uh, you know, where the break was, and when the horse, you know, uh, was an uneven step, uh, sometimes the brakes went in the wrong place. Uh, that's probably apocryphal uh, at best, but, uh, but you get the point. Uh, we need to be careful that, uh, that we don't just pull a verse out or even a paragraph and not understand what a teacher I just loved, who's up in his 90s now, Dick Lucas from England, talks about as the melodic line of the book, the theme of the book that ties all the things together. All the different things in a symphony uh, flow with that melodic line. And if you don't get that melodic line, you don't understand what's going on in, in the music in some ways. So Peter is shepherding here. This is a letter from a shepherd. Uh, he's shepherding both the church as Jesus' household and individual households to be a place where the beauty and glory of God can shine forth in spite of our being in, in our current city, in spite of our being family members in the heavenly household of the new heavens and the new earth, which isn't going to get here until Jesus comes back and the heavenly Jerusalem comes 
to earth and God's people dwell together with the Father and the Son. But we want a quick fix. We want commands. We want a textbook where you just go to the glossary in the back from a given verse and this is what it says. Now it doesn't change what essentially most of you know about this text, but I think it helps a whole lot. At least it does me. We'll see if it helps you. Uh, I quoted at our leadership conference we had uh, with a lot of the officers and staff uh, and spouses uh, Friday night and Saturday, Peter Senge, uh, trained at Stanford and MIT in organizations, and I love this statement from him. He says, we keep bringing in mechanics when what we need are gardeners, and he helps big corporations. We want a mechanic to come in and tell us, this is how we fix it. This is how we make it work right immediately. But sometimes what's needed is, and what can't happen is the quick fix. Sometimes you need, well, we ultimately really need our father who is the vineyard owner and Jesus who's the vine dresser uh, who uses in Luke 13 the image of being the vine dresser of Israel and because it's not bearing fruit towards his death uh, Jesus death uh, uh, the parable says well give it one more year and put manure around on it I love that image of Jesus putting manure on his church because we need dumped on sometimes or we're not going to grow. Thank you. I really like the humor of that too. But we need that. And, and it's what nurtures us with the nutrients to help us grow. So you've got to understand that it's not a quick fix. And gardeners move more slowly than mechanics. They help organisms grow and develop so they can bear good fruit for the purpose for which they are designed and created. So if you want to understand Peter's theme in our passage and how it addresses wives and husbands to be living stones, to be shaped to fit into Jesus' household, then you've got to see that he's shaping us as little stones to be the church we need to be. And for this church that he's writing to, these are churches in Asia Minor, where there's a certain kind of culture. And so Peter's applications led by the Spirit of God all assume what comes in the last part of chapter 2. And what was there, we ended with it last week, about Jesus, who willingly suffered for others, who left you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, even when he was treated badly and ultimately killed for doing right and doing good without sin. And he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Peter's applications are aimed especially to how non-believers, including non-believing spouses of believers that Peter addresses in the first paragraph of chapter 3, might be pointed to God's goodness, beauty, and grace by our actions, including our actions as wives and husbands. So, let me pause and make sure you get it, that Peter's not just talking about as a separate thing. This is what wives do. This is what husbands do. He's saying to be disciples, this is what disciples do. And then if you happen to find yourself in this kind of a circumstance, a servant, a bond slave, or if you are a wife, or if you are a husband, then being a disciple has certain implications. And paying special attention to how outsiders are going to see the church because Peter doesn't want to see the church as so revolutionary that it gets stomped out 
but he wants people to see that the goodness of God's commandments agrees with a lot of things that they already say. I mean, that's Paul's way of doing things in Acts 17 when he affirms things that are true in Greek culture, but then shows how different the gospel is. So Peter's a lot smarter than we thought he was. And, and we're too quick to reject when we hear code words like uh, submit or headship. You know, we put our definition into that instead of saying, you know, what's the gospel definition of that in the text? So if you struggle the minute you looked at this text, I ask you to stay with me and really look at how Peter is applying it and, and what it means. Um, as much as possible, they want to do what is going to be seen as good by their neighbors to display the goodness with a different motive than their neighbors to make the love of Christ and the glory of Christ shine. So that's our theme. Get this as kind of a, a big heading. I don't think, I did not get it on the outline. Uh, the disciples that Jesus is shaping to form his church. The disciples that Jesus is shaping to form his household, his church, also display the shape he wants in every godly household. In other words, what he says to wives and to husbands is, is basically the same kind of dying to self and living for others and being willing to suffer for wrongdoing just applied out there. It's not a separate category that defines marriage in a way that some in the world think is awful. In fact, Jesus helped marriage, still does, more than anybody and helped women more than anybody and still does. The disciples Jesus is shaping to form his household also display the shape he wants in every godly household. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's not just in the worship service. As you're acting as a wife in your household, as a husband as a head of household, and remember, a lot of these households have a lot of people in them. They got servants, they got cousins. They got nephews. There's more than one woman, not just the wife of the head of household. So with that in mind, just so you stay awake, but really to honor God, would you stand as we read the text? 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, or it's taking in everything that came before, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some, some of your husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Let me pause just with a question for you. Uh, how many of you still occasionally read the King James Bible, which is, is wonderful? I, I do occasionally. I see a, a few hands. Uh, King James Bible in this text says that they may be won by the conversation of their wives. The exact opposite of what the text means in the Greek. Was the King James a bad translation? No. How many of you have ever had a pair of Converse All-Stars basketball shoes? I see all kinds of hands going up with that. Do you know why Converse Shoe Company was named Converse? Because you uh, had shoes to converse traverse to move around the basketball floor. Conversation didn't mean words in Elizabethan English. It meant the way you walk around. It meant behavior, which is why we need new translations from time to time so that we can understand what the Greek really meant in the first place. 
So wives, if your husband don't believe, don't believe the word of God, they might be one without a word from you, meaning you're preaching to them, uh, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. By the way, some people have interpreted this uh, in such an extreme way about dress that if they were really honest with the text, we wouldn't wear any clothes. Because if you read the language closely, if you're going to get rid of the gold braiding, you're going to get rid of clothes. I mean, that's the logic of the grammar of the text. Uh, So I don't think many of us go there, but in case you tend to it, don't. Stop it. (laughs) But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Wives, like all Jesus' disciples, are to do good and entrust themselves to God who judges justly. Note the focus. It's the bigger focus in Peter. Wives, like all Jesus' disciples, this isn't just something, some narrow thing uh, to wives. This is the way all of us are to be. Eager to do good, entrusting ourselves to God, who judges justly, even when people don't understand why we think what we're doing is good. I'm not going to take the time to read the text again, just since we just read it, but what are some of the expectations in that culture? Wives were expected, generally, to be subordinate. And Peter honors this basically, but uh, uh, please note, if you've read the Scripture, if you're new to it, uh, it's important for you to know that Jesus and the apostles don't call wives to choose to be in submission to men in general. You know, when you enter into a marriage, you enter into a particular kind of role, and it's actually a lot different in the way the New Testament describes it than the way it often gets criticized as being, and we'll see that. Uh, uh, I'll give you a hint. Uh, uh, Philo, uh, a Jewish philosopher, and Josephus, a Jewish historian, really got angry with God for the Genesis story about Sarah. Because there are three, at least, maybe four places where Sarah tells Abraham what to do, and God is one of them, telling him uh, to do what she told him to do. Uh, And they didn't think that was very appropriate, being a Jewish philosopher and a Jewish... uh, It's really the the New Testament gospel foreshadowed in uh, the relationship of Abraham and Sarah, and his acting towards her in an understanding way, knowing who she is and knowing the needs that they had to be God's people where they were. Uh, Don't be stereotypical in your approach. Listen to the text. Peter, Peter is doing a remarkably skillful thing here of threading the needle that both causes the outsiders, if they hear what he's teaching, to say, yeah, we, we talk about authority, so maybe these Christians are okay, we talk about this. At the same time, he's undermining the things 
that are unjust and unfair in the culture. Except she's doing the gardener slow thing. And over history, it's continued uh, to undo all kinds of stuff. And please note that a man's call to love his wife as Christ loves the church, Ephesians 5, is a call to be so tied to loving them that it's a way of expressing a bond that is a kind of mutual submission. Do you want to know how sinful we all are? Just look at Ephesians 5, uh, which some men and some women have amended. It uh, uh, takes the commandment of submission to the wife and the commandment of the husband to be the head, where he's supposed to lie, lay down his life for his wife as Christ loves for the church, and come up with an interpretation that lets a man be a bully and an ogre and, and have a club to beat her. I mean, you've got to be really sinful to get that application out of that text. Because if you really understand the text and the context, he's telling them each in different words to submit to one another and value one another and honor one another. Yes, there are issues that we don't have time to go into as to how that plays out in decision-making and other things. But ultimately, there is an equality of, of worth and, and honor, and it's what Paul says, it's why Paul says in Galatians 3.28, you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because ultimately, while there are role distinctions that the Scriptures teach for good reasons, uh, underneath it is a bedrock of Adam and Eve's equal worth in shepherding creation after God made it, together as a couple, and what's going on. If I'm raising questions, good. Ask them of me or somebody else sometime. Um, and please note that God does not call his people to stupidity. If a man knows his wife tends to be wiser and more gifted than he in many areas, uh, the call to lay down his life for her is to be a gardener and to encourage her to use and develop her gifts. I mean, what wise, wise president of a company doesn't hire some vice presidents that know more in their area than he does? If it's a big company, the president can't begin to know as much in every area, can they, Steve? You've been the HR guy for some of those presidents. So God doesn't want CEOs to be stupid. He doesn't want husbands to be stupid. But he wants all of us to model our submission to him and how do we present Christ in a way that people will wonder, how can you be that way? And the adorning value that is in this text, you know, respect was expected in the culture and freedom in Christ was not to be used for believers, including wives, to disrespect others and including their husbands if their husbands were an ogre. And pure conduct, a word regarding uh, purity of faithfulness and devotion to one husband, and some cultures required that of the wife in a way they didn't require to the husband. Ugh. Think God approves that? Not if you've read his word. Tells the husband to lay down his wife. And he tells, what he's, tells us each what he's told us earlier in Peter about uh, disciplining, having self-control uh, for the desires of the flesh. But the adorning believers need, and his wives they need it, to be towards their husband in a way that would even cause an unbelieving husband to be amazed. The value on the inner person, the heart, affects all those we relate to. Peter's just applying it to husbands and wives in this text. 
but it's a virtue for all of us as we relate to work for, serve with, all those people around it. Our spirits should not be striving to mark our place and our standing as higher than or even equal to all those around us, but to be willing to be servants when people least expect it. Because the place where that's happened more than anything else is who would, expected, who would have expected God to come to earth and be a servant? And yet that's what he did. And there's a reason, and it's the thread of our following in his steps. Our gentleness and quietness, our non-striving spirit, reveals our dependence on God and his worthiness. He's saying we're not to care about how we look outwardly as much for ourselves, but for our neighbors. So husbands don't have a right to be an ogre. And if you know Sarah's story, you know that Abraham was understanding and listened to her, often doing what she wanted, even honoring her wish that they have a child through Hagar. So how did Sarah submit? How did Sarah, by faith, not fear anything that was threatening? Isn't that a fascinating phrase in the midst of the text? And she didn't fear anything that was fearful, is literally what the Greek says. It meant she leaned on God no matter what happened in their circumstances, sometimes leaning on Abraham's faith in God. She followed Abraham on a risky journey from the prominent city of Ur, one of the most populated cities in the world, one of the most advanced cities in the world. Abraham left that when God told him to go, and he didn't know what it was going to be like, where he was going. A lot of wilderness, a lot of sheep, a lot of kings that were different each time, and he had to figure out how to deal with them. And she submitted in faith to going with him. Uh, she stuck with him in a promise that she would have pleasure in risking conceiving and bearing a child. I love the fact that the Bible is so honest. She says, as an older wife, uh, shall I indeed have pleasure again and bear a child? But there's a risk in that. I mean, think about the fact that you know, we take it for granted that most uh, childbirths are going to go well and that not very many women are going to die in childbirth. That hasn't been the way for most of the world most of the time and still isn't many places. So Sarah was taking a risk and trusting God. And I mentioned that uh, while some, uh, even of the, the scholars, didn't understand uh, how Abraham could, uh, could obey her sometimes. But I, I want to come back real quickly, and I need to keep us moving fast here. Um, I, I read a quotation from Miroslav Volf last week, uh, uh, and he's a Croatian, ironically, in the days of the goings-on in Ukraine next to Croatia and Russia who came to teach at Fuller and, and then at Yale. And he said, the call, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. Vladimir Putin is not behaving like one who bows before a crucified God. He wants to be king 
in his way for his reasons. Wolf's point is that if you want to change unjust political economic family structures and you try to do it with direct exhortations to revolutionize them, all you do is put others who won't submit their own hearts and face their own arrogance and tendency to demand submission of others. And you haven't really changed anything. For a little while, it, acts, it looks like you've been really virtuous. But sinful human hearts are just as sinful and just as applying that sinfulness as they become in charge. Who's, who's going to keep them humble? Usually when we succeed in doing what we want, we really become less humble, don't we? And that can happen in the church. Pastors who really succeed in bigging, building a big church but aren't humble in the cross and mutually submissive to, with their fellow pastors and elders in the church, we've seen them falling one after another after another. And don't be surprised that happens in the church. Uh, nobody said the church would be any different if the people in the church aren't following well the crucified Savior. It isn't being the church, it's following Jesus that makes you different, whether it's in politics or family or you name it. Peter is addressing this thread applying it to servants, wives, husbands, and asking all of them to apply that in ways that would seem good to many outsiders in faith. And Sarah is amazing in that. And by the way, one quick thing, an aside, uh, we read this passage and uh, we don't go, oh, 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 wait a minute. And we should if we understood the culture. Do you realize that in this letter, in chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2, Peter actually directly addressed slaves and wives. And you go, so what? Well, in that culture, the husband was supposed to address the wife because he's in charge of her. So the leader would only tell the husband what to tell his wife to do or the master what to tell his slaves to do. Do you realize how radical it was in a real community when all of a sudden an apostle is speaking to the slaves in the church who can't get out of their slavery in some situations, though the apostles encourage them to do it if they can, uh, and he's, he's telling the wives, he's talking to them like they're equal with all the other people in the church, including uh, the politician, the mayor, and whoever else is in the church. I mean, I'm sure the first time they heard that, well, why is Peter doing that? But then they're also hearing Peter say that authority is important and these other things. So Peter is couching this letter not as a textbook for Christians in the 21st century to say, this is what the Scripture says about marriage. He's saying people learn these lessons about how to behave in a neighborhood of unbelievers, how to do as much as you can in a way that affirms the good things in the culture and to be gentle in the way you slip in the other things that quietly over the decades undermine their whole unjust perspective. He's honoring servants and wives by giving them moral choice and equal standing to hear and to follow. Peter says to believers, we are Sarah's children if we walk in faith, even if we have an unbelieving spouse, believing that God can bring good things and a future for us if we seek to do good and entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Believers will face things that are frightening and by faith uh, shouldn't fear them. Marinelle and I have friends, uh, PCA missionaries. She's a Ukrainian. He's the American 
son of an elder I worked with uh, dearly. I'm just going to call them D and M, just in case uh, in the turmoil uh, as they're in Ukraine, it could cause trouble to say more. Uh, first time we met uh, M, who became the wife, uh, Mary Nell and I are not usually matchmakers, uh, trying to get in the way of things, but we really loved Doug, and he'd been ministering in Ukraine, and uh, and he brought back this leader of the singles ministry that he had developed in Odessa. And we're hearing her give her testimony of growing up in communist uh, Ukraine under Russia's authority and being taught to be an atheist and how she came to faith. And I leaned over to Mary Nell and said to her, I said, if Doug doesn't marry that woman, he's the dumbest guy I know. And because uh, she is so incredibly smart and it was proven to be true when they went to seminary, she got a lot better grades than he did. And he announced a week later uh, that they were getting engaged. And they've been in ministry for decades now over there. Uh, and he knew she was smarter than her. And the way their marriage is they invited hundreds of Ukrainian couples into their home. People were utterly amazed at her honoring him in the way Scripture says. But of his living towards her with such an understanding way and with such respect and deferring to her knowledge and her instincts and, and asking forgiveness of one another because they're both kind of feisty. And, and these young Ukrainians, by the hundreds over the decades, like, how can you have a marriage like that? We've never seen marriage like that. Begin to see that the ways of God, of God are beautiful are beautiful in spite of all the things their culture had been trying to tell them. And they've had couple after couple into their home who've been attracted wonderfully, taking Peter's words to heart, many coming to Christ and working with them to start other college ministries and churches. And right now in western Ukraine, which is getting messier than they expected it to, uh, they're taking in refugees fleeing to western Ukraine and continuing to do the same thing. If that's not a living example of what Peter's trying to drive into our hearts, I don't know one. And so very quickly to the end, I've been getting after the husbands in point uh, one, so by being brief in point two for the sake of time, I'm not letting husbands off the hook. Husbands likewise are to do good, showing understanding and honor knowing because God is their judge that this affects their prayers for the household and the city. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives, verse 7, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And note that while Peter doesn't mention husbands with unbelieving spouses, it's unreasonable to think there weren't some that were in that state just like the other way around. And what... Uh, Peter is saying here is not so easy to see in the English text, though it's very hard to translate. I'm not criticizing our translations. The New American Standard probably comes the closest when it says, uh, you husbands in the same way live with, and if you have a New American Standard, uh, with the words your wives are in italics, which in the New American Standard means they're not in the text. I'll tell you about that in just one moment. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Your wives is in italics because the Greek literally tells the husbands 
to live with, according to understanding or wisdom as a weaker vessel, the feminine. It's an adjective. And it's a word that's usually used for women in general, not for wives. And I think what Peter's doing, so you don't get confused, is he's acknowledging the households. In other words, this definitely applies to the husband with his wife, but think of Abraham and a lot with this huge household, and, and, and as their kids grow up and the nephew's kids grow up, you've got all kinds of other wives there. And if a guy's the patriarch and head of the family, he gets, if he wants to be, an ogre not only to his wife, but to all the wives and all the women. Isn't that wonderful? No, it's awful. So Peter's saying this in a way that fits everybody and that says if you're the head of a bigger household, it applies to how you deal with all of those that are your sisters in Christ or just your sisters by creation. And it certainly applies to your wife. And as to the weaker vessels, Peter's addressing the common Greco-Roman attitude of the inferiority of women. And again, he gently undermines it by starting with God's perspective. She uh, and he, with God's discipline on those who practically uh, deny that they're equal, you know, he's saying that this affects everything. And the admonition could apply both to Christian and non-Christian wives and other women in the household. That, uh, that what he's doing is a part, and he's not to do it wrong, of showing the beauty of God's ways. He's to be tender and compassionate and under standing and as to weakness uh, Aristotle writes of a woman's bodily raw physical strength compared to men which is certainly uh, generally commonly true and even in the New Testament time uh, in the Greek culture uh, things such as memory and attention and the power to practice self-control were seen as equal between men and women but physical abilities and the tasks associated with them were differentiated not to mention what I've said about childbirth and the risk of death but do, women, due to the size and strength, then and now risk physical and sexual abuse more than men. And this context may incl have included weakness in the sense of social power and authority. Peter may be saying, they've got less power, they've got less authority. So they are the weaker vessel in our culture. And in some ways, in every culture. You know, which is why some of the gains that are gains in some ways for women in our culture have all caused, also caused all kinds of emotional hurt as people have chosen not to have children and then later in their careers realize, I wish I had children. You know, and I bought into a philosophy that pushed me so hard this way that I ignored other things that my mind and my heart and my body. So it's understanding, it's not rules. If you hear what I just said as a new rule book to reapply things in a stiff way, you're not listening to Peter and you're not listening to me. And you can do that, and Peter can tell you if he was offended in heaven, but I'm not offended if, if you have trouble putting that together. As to prayers hindered, hindered, and then we're coming to the end. Much more could be addressed than we've got time for, but just a couple of insights. In the Greco-Roman world, and Peter knew it, uh, it was common, a common thought for the prayers of the heads of households and families the local and Greek and Roman gods, their prayers to those gods were seen to be important for the welfare of the whole city and beyond. So outsiders would have understand if the husband's got a mess in his family and his wife's running wild or he becomes known as too much of an ogre, uh, it can mess everything up in his part of the city and ultimately the city and if it offends the gods, it can affect the whole country. 
I mean, that was part of their belief structure. That's why they were so upset as the Christian faith began to really grow, and why you can read serious textbooks that will tell you that uh, the Romans were really upset with Christianity because they thought the Christians really made the gods mad because they wouldn't worship them, and it brought down the empire. I mean, we get blamed for all kinds of stuff, not quite as much as the Jews, but we get our fair share. That's a reality that was going there. But Peter pushes it further. As believers are to honor one another above the pagan ways of honoring. Because men and women alike are adopted sons and daughters of God. That's the glory we share together equally. Men and women in Christ. Adopted into the family. And if we don't behave like that towards one another. Men to women. Women to men then it's hard to be salt and light, Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, if we don't behave towards outsiders by the way we behave towards one another in a way that's salty, that makes people hungry for the taste of the gospel, like those people that came into D&M's home, we're not able to be as effective. If a wife's disruption of the household from lack of respect and honor to her husband is great, it'll be seen both by unbelievers and believers as disruptive to the social good, bringing dishonor and disfavor from the gods. If a husband is an ogre not living with his wife with tenderness and honoring her, he disrupts following in both Jesus' steps and in losing respect from others for his lack of wisdom. Think of what happened to Israel when in disobedience they didn't care about how they witnessed to and treated the Gentiles. We said it a couple weeks ago. They took the court of the Gentiles and filled it with all the money changing so there wasn't even room for the Gentiles. And God says, you don't know how to behave well enough to love the Gentile people that I'm loving and trying to draw myself to Jerusalem? I told you way back that's why I was sending you to Jerusalem was so you could do that and that I could be with you with the temple. And he disciplined Israel. So there's really a very broad biblical theme here of the consequences of judgment and hindering of prayers for what we want. We say we long for the goodness and blessing to our families and to our cities, to our nations. But do we live in a way that really seeks the good? I love the theme that you all have had for a while. Stephen said it this morning. You know, we're here not just for one another, but to worship God and and for the good of Orlando. That's what this text is about. And it says it starts in the way we treat one another as husbands and wives, amongst how we treat one another at work, the servants thing, all of these other things. So Peter's calling his husbands to a high standard of the even more fully gracious new covenant. Their actions affect how they are able to have their good deeds be for the good of their neighbors. And care and trustworthiness and mutual honor are the foundations of doing good for the city and beyond. And how we behave creates or destroys trust in society. And trust affects economics. If you don't think the banks are going to still have your money, you don't want to put it in them. Uh, if you don't think your work and the money you earn, you're going to be able to keep. Uh, you stop working as hard. Soviet Union found that out. The Bible teaches all that. No perfection till Christ gets back, but it's important. One story and I'm done. I mentioned Jerem Bars from Covenant Seminary and Francis Schaefer and Labrie uh, 
and how his father came to Christ. Uh, after Jerem's father died, his mother remarried a few years later. And uh, she married an ogre. I don't think I told this to you. Stop me if I do. Uh, I mean, Jerem just after, even before the wedding, was concerned, and, and a few months after the wedding, said, Mom, why did you marry this man? He's rude. He's mean to you. He doesn't put you equal to himself, let alone ahead of you in any way. And, and she just said, I know. But her exact words were, I made my bed and I got to lie in it. And so she and Jerem, because she was a believer, uh, had to decide how do they, how does she live with him and how does Jerem treat him? And Jerem tried all kinds of things. Couldn't get to the guy just in friendship in any way. Tried to give him books he didn't like to read. Uh, tried to give him other gifts he didn't like any of the gifts. But Jerem finally, after praying and praying and praying, found out he really likes plants. So for, I think it was like 10 years, every birthday and uh, every Christmas, he'd give him some kind of a plant that he thought he'd be fascinated with, and he'd give him a pamphlet or a book, and the guy actually started reading again because he liked the plants, he likes the books. And the guy's an ogre. He's saying horrible things to his mom, and he's saying horrible things to me, and Jerem just keeps giving him gifts and being cordial with him and trying to say phrases to him that honored him. And finally, I think it was almost 10 years later, uh, something happened and I don't know whether it was the illness that came on him soon after or just God's grace. He finally turned to Jerem one day and he said, why have you treated me the way you treated me? I've been awful to you. Why'd you keep giving me things? When all the first gifts you gave me, I despised and let you know it. Why did you do that? You know, one of the answers to that question is Jesus, if you understand this text. Why are my motives different than other people in the world, even when you're beating up on me and you're hurting my mom? It's because that's what Jesus did for me. My life beat up on him. My life hated everything he stands for. I was so confused, I almost committed suicide in college. That's true of Jeremy. And so I decided that my Lord has done so much for me, I wanted to treat you like he treated me. And his stepfather came to Christ. And in the last half year or year of his life before he died, uh, his mom said, one of the very best years, if not the best of my life. Because he became a Christian husband, living with her with understanding, honoring her. Because he'd been taught to honor by her and by Jerem, and now by the Lord Jesus, the vineyard master, the stone shaper Jesus, really doesn't know what he's doing. It just takes more time sometimes than we want, but our task is to be faithful and be as Jesus was to us, to those we struggle with in our family, in our neighborhood, in our job, and in our city. Amen.